Thank you, Brother James. Welcome, everybody that's here, those that are watching online. We come to the second portion of the study in the book of Romans, uh, right towards the beginning of the book. So if you are able to stand, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. Romans chapter 8. Verses 5 through 11. And the inerrant word of God reads as follows. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For those who set minds on things of the is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is alive, that it is inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that inspired the scriptures, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is the spirit that is within those who believe in you. As we continue our study, Lord, teach us through your Holy Spirit what it means to live according to the Spirit. Grant us repentance to turn to you in faith and obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, I was on international travel this past week. Some of you remember, shortly after the service, I went to the airport and I flew to South America. As I was sitting there on the airplane before takeoff, I was paying attention to how, not to the attendant giving the instructions, but I was paying attention to how pretty much nobody pays attention to the emergency instructions when the flight attendants are doing their thing, you know, with the seat belts and if the mask comes down to what to do for the oxygen and stuff. Now, I was reminded of times that I look up videos of when there's a crisis in midair and how people record with their phones and it's basically chaos. Everybody yelling and people are panicked and especially when there's a lot of turbulence and maybe the cabin loses pressure. And you would think that people about to go in the airplane think this is really important for me. I'm going to pay attention in case of an emergency. And then when the emergency takes place, nobody paid attention, so now chaos ensues, right? My friends, so is with the Word of God. Every time we hear a study, every time we hear the Word of God being preached, we think, ah, you know, this is, I probably heard this already, or maybe really doesn't apply to me. But my brothers and sisters, my friends, we are in a death or life emergency every day spiritually speaking and if we don't heed the words of scripture 
we are just like the people that never paid attention on what to do in case of a crisis in midair in an airplane. Let us consider that as we review the passage this morning that we just read. It is relevant to us. So last time we looked at the same passage that we just read, but we focused on verses 5 through 8. And verses 5 through 8 gave us a quick snippet of what it means to basically live according to the flesh, right? Meaning that we only care or primarily care only for the things of the here and now, the physical needs, the financial needs, the need to be healthy and what have you. And we learned <clears throat> that in comparison to living only to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit are those that the perfect work of Christ, his perfect obedience, his sacrifice, that through that, the fulfillment of God's requirement, the fulfillment of the law is fulfilled in us. Right. In those that belong to Christ. Let us be reminded. Romans 8, 4. The second part of that. Who is that promise for? It's for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we began the study last week by really understanding what it means to live according to the flesh. We focused mainly on that. And then we saw a little bit of what it means to live according to the Spirit. Specifically, we saw some characteristics of what it means to walk according to the flesh. And we, when we talk about living according to or to set our minds on certain things, remember this refers to our natural disposition, like the things that my flesh, the things that my carnally minded mind wants to do. Right? If I, the example I gave, if I want to eat healthy, there's no end of temptations for me to break that habit of trying to eat healthy, right? That's my natural inclination. I, I like to eat bad things. So it is with the things of the spiritual realm. Our natural mind, our natural desires, our natural body want to go against what the Spirit of God wants us to do. We're reminded in Proverbs 23, 7, where it says, For as he calculates in his soul, in our inner being, so he is. Right? That's the mind of man. Okay? So then living according to the flesh means focusing only, prioritizing only or primarily the things of the here and now, and somebody who lives according to the flesh has no genuine regard for the true things of God. Now, mind you, this could be somebody who is perhaps a non-believer, atheist, militantly so, but this can also be a religious person, someone who tries to be really good and do good things and follow the rules and regulations of their religion or their cult or what have you. So no one is exempt from trying to please God with their own merits. And the only end of that is death. Spirit, not only physical death, but spiritual death. Okay? Now, if you missed last Sunday, you're caught up now. So now we're ready to see what we're going to talk about today. Today, we will see that it is possible to please God by living according to the Spirit. And what is Paul's main point in this passage, in the second half of the passage which is read? The main point we're going to see is that the Spirit of God that lives inside of Christians is what makes it possible to walk according to the Spirit. 
It is what makes it possible for us to be spiritually minded. Sure, the physical needs that we have are important. We discussed that last week. But more important than that are the things of the spiritual realm, specifically on how we become reconciled with the Holy God. So we're going to see this main point of Paul that living according to the Spirit is possible because the Spirit of God is in us. We're going to see it in three main points. First, we're going to see that God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells believers. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus, God the Son, that is, dwells inside believers. And thirdly, we're going to see that God the Father dwells inside believers. Let us dive right in. So number one, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, dwells inside believers. And because of that, we are empowered to not live by the flesh, to not fall for living only to the things according to the flesh. Romans 8, 9, the first portion, we're going to break that into three sections, that first verse. First, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now this, this is not an exhortation for Christians to live according to the Spirit. This is a statement of fact. Paul does encourage and exhort believers to live according to the Spirit, but here he's declaring it as a fact. If you are a Christian, you will live according to the Spirit. Okay. Now we may have our battles and we have our carnal desires that still have remnant within us, right? But Paul is saying, you, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church of Rome, right? He's talking to Christians. And he's telling those Christians, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Okay? And as Paul refers to the church and tells them, you are in the spirit. If you have a profession of Christ today, Paul is telling you that you too are living according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Okay? Now, let us consider this. When we say that we live according to the flesh, that obviously means that we live according to the body, according to our physical needs, according to what we need to sustain our, our livelihood, right? Yeah, it does mean that. Now, non-Christians who live according to the flesh, and that is basically redundant because non-Christians only can live according to the flesh, their spirit is dead. Those that are not Christian, they are spiritually dead. Where are Christians, in contrast, Although we are also alive in the, in, the, in the body, right? We have a body that is alive. We have that in common with non-Christians. But our spirit is alive. Our spirit is not dead. And therefore, we can understand spiritual things. Therefore, we recognize our need to repent. Therefore, we know that we need a Savior. Therefore, we repent and we come to Christ time and time again in our life of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus every day. That battle doesn't end until God takes us, okay? So there's a passage here in Ephesians 2, the first five verses of Ephesians 2, that tell us, as Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, what the contrast is between those who live according to the flesh and those that live according to the spirit. Those are spiritually dead and those that are spiritually alive. It reads as follows. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So then what do we see here? Paul is telling us that non-Christians, by the way, all those he's talking to who are now Christians, he says, you once were in that place that are only alive in the physical body. What is true of those that are only alive in the physical body? Well, it says that you are dead. You're spiritually, obviously you're alive in your body, but Paul is saying you are spiritually dead because of sin. Paul also says that if you are dead spiritually, you are following Satan. There's no neutral ground. Nobody can say, well, you know, I don't really believe in God, and not even in, in Satan, I don't, I don't believe. Nope, you're not neutral. If you don't believe in Christ, you are Christ's enemy, and you are dead spiritually. You are following Satan. There's only two camps. And then we also see that someone who lives only in the flesh carries out the desires of the fleshly mind, whatever that may be. That could be lust, that could be a, a vice, an addiction, whatever it may be. A person that is carnally minded in that sense will only seek to fulfill those desires. And then Paul also tells us that those people are children of wrath. They are under the wrath and the judgment of God. And then that such condition, because Christians once were in that place, that is the default condition of everyone who is born. So in contrast, Paul then says, but God, but God. It doesn't say, but you kind of got your act together. And nope, no such thing. Paul says, but God, meaning this is none of your doing. You did nothing for God to intercede. As a matter of fact, if you did something for God to, because you think that you did something, God interceded, that would be grounds to question if we understand salvation. You did nothing. If you are indeed a Christian, you did nothing. Paul says, but God, because of God's mercy, that means that God withheld what you should have really had. That's God's mercy. He withheld that judgment and gave us instead grace, given us what we don't deserve, that is salvation. Because of that, because of God's love towards his, his elect, towards his people, God gave spiritual life. Obviously, people are already alive in their body, right? Alive in the flesh. But he gave us spiritual life. So then, the opposite of the quick list which is read is now true of the Christian. That is, instead of being spiritually dead, we are spiritually alive. Instead of following Satan, now we follow Jesus. Instead of falling into sin each time, we have the power to say no to sin and to the sinful desires that can so easily ensnare us. We are no longer children of wrath on our way to hell, but now we are children of Christ. And we then no longer are under the default condition of humanity. We have passed from judgment into an innocent verdict before God. Our default condition has been overcome. There's no condemnation for us. So then, if that is true, 
the things of the flesh, carly minded, have been overridden, have been exchanged for the things of God because of what God has done in us because of his great mercy, then we need to ask ourselves, Romans 8 verse 9, the second part of that, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, right? Paul's saying that is true if the Spirit of God dwells in you, okay? The physical body of Christians is indwelled by God the Holy Spirit, okay? Wherever we're at, whatever we do, whatever we consume, whatever button we press in our computer, we are not alone. Whatever speech comes out of our mouth, the thoughts that I have when somebody cuts me off in the freeway, I am not alone. God is there. God indwells his believers. So in God relating to humanity, understand this, God had to condescend himself. Okay? God is infinitely above us. Obviously, morally speaking, intellectually speaking, just because, because of who he is. And in order for him to relate himself to us, when he does that, God does not live in a place made by human hands, made by humans. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anyone. He is self-existing, self-sufficient. Let us look at Acts 17, 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So then in relation to his creation, where does God live? Being raised in a tradition of Roman Catholicism in Mexico, we have this ingrained concept in our mind that we go to church. And when we hear the loud echo in those huge temples and churches, that we are told, like, this is where God is. This is where God dwells. The scripture says there's no such thing. God does not dwell in a temple made by hands. God doesn't need that. God is not interested in that. What we had in the Old Testament, it was a foreshadow of what is to come. And now the Christ has come. We are told that God lives where? If not in a place, then where? In his relation to humans, right? Where does God dwell? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. What it says? And you... Are that temple. My friends, my brothers, this is heavy stuff. If we are Christians, if we have in mind that God lives and dwells in these holy places and this heavily decorated palace like looking temples, that's not it. God dwells in you. And in these two verses, we just read, there's many more, but in those two, we know the following. We know that God is not dependent on men. 
He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. God is not a taker. He gives. He gives life. He gives breath. He gives provision. However, God does demand of you to abide by his rule, by his commandments. Everyone is on the hook for the commandments of God. God is a giver. And because God has everyone on the hook to be holy, to be righteous as he is holy, and nobody can meet that, that is the very reason why everyone's default condition is to be fallen in sin, in condemnation, in our trespasses and sins. Okay? So God is self-existing, self-dependent. We don't understand many times that he doesn't need us. And secondly, we also see that Paul tells the church of Corinth that God the Holy Spirit dwells inside them. In essence, he's saying, church of Corinth, you are that temple. Each of you are that temple in which God dwells. So today, my friends, my beloved members of Acts Reform Church and those visiting, if you are a Christian, God is telling you, you are that temple. That is where God lives, in you. In contrast, if you are not a Christian, the truth is that God does not live in you. Which takes us to the following observation. Not everyone belongs to Christ. Now let's look at the third part of that verse. Eight, 9, part C. It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Okay, what does this mean? So what happened to, you know, everybody's, everybody's a winner, everybody gets a trophy. No, that is a relatively new concept in our culture. No such thing. Especially when it comes to the things of God. I made a quick list here. Go ahead to the next uh, slide. The fact that the true gospel is discriminatory. It discriminates. Now, not on the basis of sin, sinful partiality, like we have our sinful biases and partialities. No. The gospel discriminates because God is holy and because he has a perfect standard. So from that we know that God discriminates because all are born being enemies of God by our own human fallen nature. And I put the, a couple of references there for each item. For that one would be James 4.4, 4, Romans 3.23. Secondly, God says that those who are his sheep are different from those that are goats. That's the analogy that Jesus uses. That's in Matthew 25. Thirdly, similarly, God says that at one point he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's going to be a separation. That's in Matthew 13. I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew 3. And then God says that there are those that are children of righteousness and there are those that are children of the devil. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. So what is the main takeaway then from that? Only those who belong to Christ have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Okay. This is a heavy, heavy truth. Okay. 
takes us to the second point. Just as the Holy Spirit specifically dwells inside believers, Jesus similarly dwells inside believers. And he gives spiritual life. Romans 8.10, that's the second verse in our study today. It reads, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The main takeaway here would be that Christ being inside of us means and confirms that the person is spiritually alive and vice versa. If the, spirit, if the person is spiritually alive, then that means that Christ is in them. Further, if the spirit of Christ, if Christ is inside a believer, that means that that person has the righteousness of Christ in them. So how does Christ make us alive? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So let's remember that in the spiritual ship that Adam sailed, if you will, we all sank with him. Okay? You, me, everybody that you've ever known, we all sank in the sinful ship that the first man, Adam, sailed. That's why the scripture says, in Adam, all die. Okay? The only one who can spiritually rescue us from that, from that ship that is not sinking, I already sank, right? The only one who can save us from that is the second Adam, or the last Adam. Who is that? It's Jesus. Whereas the first Adam failed, the second Adam fulfilled perfectly what was required. So Jesus makes us spiritually alive to those who turn to him in repentance. So then, as he makes us spiritually alive, then the implication of that, that is the righteousness of Christ, is also in us. It's inside of us. Now, why is, this, why is that important? Okay, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We already saw that. We are indwelled by Christ. Okay, that's where we're at now. And if we have the Spirit of Christ, if Christ is in us, that means that the righteousness of Christ is also who we are identified as before God. And before others too, because it'll show through our life. What does that mean, that we have the righteousness of Christ? Well, as I said before here in a couple of points earlier, no one is exempt from the demands of God. Okay? Every human being is accountable to God to be holy as he is holy. This means that being a good person is not going to do. This means that trying really hard to follow rules is not going to cut it. And even if, even if you do better than your neighbor, which all of us think that we do, right? When we compare ourselves morally, I'm not as bad as whoever it is, right? We think somebody worse than us. But the truth is, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. The Bible tells us that not only are we not a good person, but that the requirement for God to reconcile with him, it is so high of a standard that it is impossible for us to meet it in human merits. And that is why God himself had to condescend himself. God himself had to become 
in the likeness of men in order to fulfill what was required. To fulfill our righteousness, to fulfill the law perfectly, to live a righteous, perfect life, right? Being born, of, uh, being born without original sin of a virgin, Matthew 1.18. Being born of a woman under the law, Galatians 4.4. So that he could demonstrate that he can fulfill the law. Meaning, never committing any sin. Never any deceit was in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22. That's Jesus. So everything that God requires of humanity, everybody fails. So God had to become man himself in order to fulfill his own requirements. Taking the righteous judgment that we deserved upon himself so that we can escape the judgment of God Romans 3.25 John 3.17 right that's what Christ did let us understand that we have the righteousness of Christ yes if we are believers and that is a huge deal the only reason that's possible is because God himself came down and met the requirements for us so that when we trust in him by faith, we have the spirit in us. Christ has made us alive. And when God looks at his children, God does not see our wickedness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. Okay. The verdict is now not only not guilty, but come into my palace, my child. Okay. So then, when we have that assurance that we have God's spirit, that we have his righteousness because of Jesus, we also have the promise that is yet to come. And that is the promise of a future physical resurrection. That takes us to our third and last point. God the Father also dwells inside believers. And that assures us that we will be partakers of a future resurrection into everlasting life with him. Romans 8.11, that's the third and last verse for today. It says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now notice a phrase here in this verse. The spirit of him who raised Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. The spirit of him who raised Jesus. The spirit, who's that? The spirit is the Holy Spirit. Of him, who is that referring to? God the Father. The spirit of God the Father. Who did what? Who raised Jesus from the dead. We see here, in one of many examples, the divine harmony, the perfect harmony of scripture, time and time again which shows us the glory of the triune God and how the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit works in the life of believers. So then, what does the triune God ultimately assures us of as believers? For the here and now, it is true that God has extended common grace to all, believers and non-believers alike. We enjoy the blessings of 
having life, by and large, most of us, to live a comfortable and healthy life, even if some of us may be sick. For the most part, he already gave us many years of health, right? He gives us the blessing of enjoying family, enjoying marriage, enjoying children, enjoying God's creation, enjoying our pets, our hobbies, our food, right? We had a feast yesterday. Like all those are shown to us, believers and unbelievers alike, in God's common grace. Okay. Pretty much all of humanity, if you are breathing, you're enjoying God's common grace. But the ultimate blessing is not that. God's ultimate blessing to his children is eternal life by trusting in the perfect work of Jesus. And that, as we saw in Ephesians 2 earlier, it is not because we were too good. Actually, we were actually the worst of the worst. And it was but God, right? He showed his mercy for us and he rescued us. So then that eternal life that Christ has given us is a spiritual truth. The gospel is a spiritual truth. But let us never forget that the spiritual truth of the gospel has an ultimate physical reality, which is the physical resurrection of our bodies that will one day die. Okay? I don't know about you. I've seen dead people up close. I've touched a dead body. It is, you can tell it's lifeless. The promise for believers is that that dead body will rise into glory. That is the promise we have. Let us look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 19. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if Jesus didn't come to this earth, if Jesus is not God Almighty in the flesh, then there's nobody that could pay the infinite debt that we owe God. And we're, we're dead. There's no rescue plan. If that is the case, as Paul puts it, basically, like people should feel sorry for us for believing in this mumbo-jumbo. And there's no hope. But thanks be to God that because Christ has come, that he has perfectly paid for our sins in full. And his spirit dwells in us, enabling us to walk in obedience. If we rewind to however many months ago we preached in Romans 1.5, it says there, one of the purposes of Paul writing this letter to the Romans is so that we can fulfill the obedience of faith Faith is not just something that we say that we believe and that's it. No, faith brings about obedience. And that obedience means that we're going to be walking according to the Spirit. How can we walk according to the Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and allows us not to fall for living only in the flesh. Because Christ dwells in us and He has made us spiritual alive. And He has given us His righteousness. And because we have Christ's righteousness, and because if we are believers, God the Father dwells in us, and He assures us of the promise of the coming resurrection. See, that's basically the summary of the whole sermon today. 
The Holy Spirit is in us. Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit and God the Father is in us. Which makes it possible for us to abide in living by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So then what does all this mean for us today? As a summary, first, we learn today that the true God is triune in nature. Three persons in one God. And because of that, the gospel itself, the good news, the saving news of Jesus is also a Trinitarian truth. The triune God dwells inside a believer and enables us to have the ultimate promise of eternal life in the future resurrection. In that, we also reminded the fact that God sends the Son. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and seals us as believers as we turn to repentance. And God the Son, Jesus, He did what was required in order to be reconciled to God. He did that perfectly. Okay, never forget this. The reason why the triune God is the only true God is because the gospel, the saving news, is triune in nature. If we don't have God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. There could be a difference now between understanding how this all works. None of us understand it perfectly, but we have enough revelation to know it so. There's a difference between not understanding versus straight out, flat out denying this truth. Okay, it's a difference. And that would be understanding the true God and Him allowing us to grow in understanding of Him versus embracing a false God. It is growing in understanding about the true Jesus, who He is, versus embracing a false Jesus, a false Christ, which basically is understanding and growing in the understanding of the true gospel, which all of us will be in that trip for the rest of our life if we're Christians, versus rejecting the true nature of the gospel, which is accomplished by a triune God. And then thirdly, is there any relevance for each of us today in this message? My friends, my brothers and sisters, do not be like those people that sit in the airplane disregarding everything that the flight attendant is telling them, only to find out that 20, 30 minutes later, they're going to be in a crisis in midair, and they have no clue how to put on their oxygen mask or how to position themselves in case of a hard landing, etc. If it's important to pay attention to that, why is it important? Because your life may be at stake. How much more if your spiritual eternity is at stake with the things of God? This is relevant for you today, this morning. So then, the question here is, does God dwell in you? Does God dwell in you? Have you repented and believed in Christ? And if you have, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Christ? Do you live a changed life? 
Do you prioritize the things of God? Are you in a daily fight against your sin? Are you in a daily fight to prioritize the things of God, knowing that that's what you should do? Do you have a path forward? And if you don't, but you know you should, I'd say you're still on the right track. But if a month, a year, two years from now, you're still in the same place, I'm sorry, there's major red flags. Let us not be discouraged then, my brothers and sisters, my friends, that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside you. And if you're not sure or if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, repent. Go to Christ. Confess your sins. He will forgive you. He will not turn you away because in the first place, if you're concerned about the spiritual truth, He is drawing you. And He will not turn you away. That is the good news. That the Holy Spirit will convict you. He will draw you to the Father. And the righteousness of the Son will dwell and apply to you. So that when you take your last breath, God Almighty would say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for reminding us of the truth that your spirit dwells in us. May you convict us to repent of sin, whether it is to trust in you for the first time or to return to you into correct path as believers. Help us, Lord, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and to live a life of repentance and obedience to you. And that our changed life would be evidence, Lord, that they would be changed. A changed life in all that we do, that it would be done for you. And that we would have spiritual things, that we would have the things of the Spirit as priority in our lives. And if we don't, that this will be the day that we say, yep, I need to do that. For it is not too late if you're breathing. May these spiritual truths have tangible and physical consequences in our everyday living beginning today. Lord Jesus, may you grant us that. In Jesus' name, amen.